Hey, Senda. Hey, Phil. And then we see Ryan looking across the waveforms, mouse in hand, ready to snip out bits and pieces of our show before it reaches the internet. Wait, but my character doesn't know that. No, but I just like, I wanted you to like kind of see what was happening before the episode came out. All right, whatever. Cue music. And welcome to another fine episode of Pandas Talking Games. I'm one of your hosts, Phil. And I am your other host, Senda. And for today's episode, we have a an email, actually, from Pod Rubin, um, who we answered a question for a while ago. And this is partially a follow-up, but we're going to treat it as its own topic, right? Um, so the question reads like this. I'd love to get your thoughts on showing players things that the characters don't actually know and possibly the use of the camera in general. Thank you for all the lovely audio you record. Well, thank you for all the listening that you have been doing, Pod. We appreciate it. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Cool. I, um, you know, I was just... So when I originally saw this question, I thought it was just about showing the character things characters don't know. But the camera is actually one of my favorite GMing techniques. Right? There's so, so much to it. <laughs> yes. So I'm really happy to do this. And uh, I love this topic. And this is very much firmly rooted in my GMing style. So uh, we've got a bunch of questions that we, we do. put down. That yes. we're going to just go back and forth. Just a quick warning for you and for Ryan, our editor. <laughs> I had such a relaxing day yesterday that I forgot to write show notes. Yeah, I was whatever. so <laughs> pleased with myself. I played a bunch of video games for the first time in forever and had this like really relaxing day. And I was just getting ready to go to bed and I was talking to you and I was like, I did not prepare a show this week. Yeah, just to be clear, I'm actually really proud of Phil for actually taking that much downtime and truly relaxing. So we don't have show notes, but I don't care. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I did have a lot of fun. I actually played a couple of video games yesterday and had like a pretty awesome kind of chill day. So we got out from work early and I like capitalized on it and like jumped on my PS4 for the first time in forever. So. As you should. We thank you. As you should. Okay. But... Whether we have a script or not, we are more than capable of answering oh, yes. this topic. Yes. <laughs> we, only, we only warn Ryan because we're talking without a script and it's sometimes a little extra editing for Ryan. But yes. we're going to try to do, we're going to try to be good, speak slowly and use our hand signals to make sure we don't talk over each other. Yes. So I guess before we even jump into this, are there any definitions that we want to talk about? Like when you say camera in game terms, what do we mean? Absolutely. So this is my own personal definition, but I'm not shy for making up definitions for role playing in general. So the camera is a narration style where the GM or, and the players can do it too, but I'm going to focus on GM. But imagine that players can do this exact same I technique. I, I do this all the time as a player when I'm describing Perfect. things for me. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is a technique, a narration technique where you are speaking, right? Because we as GMs are using our voices um, and, and players using our voices. 
And you are talking about describing things in the way that a camera in a movie or TV show would show you things in that movie. I will give a quick example. In my Knights Black Agents game, the trope that we have is that anytime we open up to a new city, we go through a process where the players all arrive in the city separately. Their characters arrive in different means. And so I will say something like, we see Zurich, the lake, the banking area, boats on the water, and we zoom in to the train station and the train pulls in, the doors open, and who steps off the train into the train station? And so what I'm doing is I'm kind of, I'm mimicking what you would see in a movie. And in this case, a kind of Jason Bourne spy thriller. I'm trying to use the same effects in my words that you would see with a camera technique in a visual media. And I think uh, we, it's it's pretty easy to tell usually when you start taking the camera's perspective because you start using words like zoom, um, right? Or like we see is actually one of, the, one of the more vague ones, but yeah, pan across. Um, sometimes when I'm running games or even when I'm playing games, I will literally say things like the camera zooms or the camera yeah. angle opens up or whatever it is. We have a wide angle shot over the city. Exactly. So you'll catch yourself doing it where you literally are just describing things that like if this was a movie or recorded in some sort of video format, what is the camera doing? I have even gone as far as putting lens flares into my descriptions. <laughs> really? Like I will occasionally describe a lens really? flare. If it is suitable, for instance, I play space games. Uh -huh. So sometimes the sun reflecting off of an object creates a lens flare. Sure I'm not opposed to putting a lens flare or two in. Nice. <laughs> so the other part of this technique, which uh, Pod Ruman mentioned, is showing the players things their characters don't know. So this, again, in a visual media, in TV shows, especially movies, things like that, we as the viewer get to not only see the protagonist many times, depending on how the movie's shot or whatever, but a lot of times we get to see the actions of the protagonist and then there'll be a cut and we will see the antagonist's actions. Yeah. Now, in the movie, the protagonists are not aware of what the antagonists are doing. We as the audience are allowed to see both. We see this also in uh, books and mm -hmm. comic books and things like that. But I'm sticking since we're sticking to camera. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll just stick with the theme of movies and TV shows. So this can often this is often a um, technique of foreshadowing where mm -hmm. we as the audience member get to see what the bad guy's up to and we're like oh no like oh no the players are you know like the players oh no the protagonists are you <laughs> but know, i mean yes the are players. in trouble yeah now in a role-playing situation players occupy a very unique position in the game they are the protagonists of the game and they are also audience members to the rest of the game. They're not always in every scene. And we as players occupy this kind of dual space of playing the game, but also watching the game. Yeah. And so we can use the technique of showing the players something that is going on, quote, off camera, 
right? Mm -hmm. Off camera being the camera that's pointed at the characters. Yes. And show them some other thing that's going on. I don't always do this, but there are times where I really like to do this. There, there are certainly some very memorable times when I have done it. Do you want to talk really quickly about our just personal favorite places to use it? Absolutely. Because I, the thing that I actually love to do and most frequently use um, the sort of unknown to the characters camera angle is um, if you think of the Marvel movies and the stingers at the end, right? That's the place that I most frequently use that camera angle is I will put a stinger at the end of a game Mm -hmm. that leads us to whatever the next session or the next game or, you know, maybe just the cliffhanger where we're going to leave it. Right. Whatever it is. um, I love to use that moment so that we know there's something more going on that the characters are going to latch into or that, you know, the, the sequel is going to be whatever it is. The thing that I can just think of off the top of my head right now, cause it's, it was one of my favorites and we actually never came back to it is in she's a super geek. We played a game of, um, um, Oh shoot. Um, one last job. There we go. Um, which is a fantastic game, by the way. But um, so we played a game of one last job. We did it as magical girls and everything wrapped up kind of, you know, we, we put a neat bow on everything. We wrapped it all up. Um, it had a happy ending. And then, and then, you know, credits roll. And we got our little stinger moment wherein we found out that the adorable little hedgehog creature who was, you know, just our magical companion and, um, you know, giving us information and stuff was evil in her own way. Right. I remember like, this. And it was great. <laughs> yep, absolutely. I myself use this technique mostly when I'm reinforcing a genre that has this technique in it. So for me, the most common ones are superhero. Mm -hmm. I will absolutely do this in a superhero game. I will do this in a spy thriller. Mm -hmm. Not always, but I'm kind of careful with it, but I do like it in the occasional spy thriller. And uh, I did, I also like it in things like conspiracy games where there's far more going on than the players can grasp. And it's sometimes nice to kind of show them a little something like, and again, I do it mostly as stingers. I've done it once or twice in the middle of a game, but I also like it as a stinger technique or an epilogue kind of like towards the back end of a session story kind of thing. It's the dun dun dun. Are you excited for next session? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Keep them hooked. I mean, um, and I guess we both answered and I definitely led you into answering that because this is how I answered um, from the perspective of the camera showing us things that the characters don't know, but now the players do so that they have something to latch into. But like the actual functionality of camera, um, I think we I think based on playing games with you and you playing games with me and all of that stuff, I think we both use it pretty consistently throughout. Mm-hmm. Just the just using that as sort of the descriptor. Yeah, it's very much a part of my GMing style. I use it often without even thinking about it, but sometimes I'll be deliberate about it. I, I will say this. I don't put it into my prep. Like I will not write down the description. Like I will not write down like camera pans and we see da-da-da-da-da. 
it is the kind of thing that's kind of ingrained into how I narrate scenes. So I don't actually write it down. I'll just say, in fact, sometimes I don't even have a note that says like describe opening of game. We just have to start from somewhere. So I will, you, you know, just, just jump in and that's how I describe things. You can absolutely prep that. And this goes back to one of my uh, tenants from Never Unprepared, you don't need to put into the prep the things that you are good at doing. Yeah. This is a skill that I'm really good at and comfortable with, so it doesn't go into my prep. It's just something I lean into as I'm running the game at the table. Yeah. Um, and I, I think for me, what's interesting about it that I'm realizing is it tends to be genre enforcing when you use it um, basically as descriptor in game as well, um, which I say because I play a lot of magical girl games and I you end up describing things frequently in the way that you would see them in like an anime or something like that, right? Which has a lot to do with what's the camera angle and where are they, right? especially when you do like a magical girl transformation, which is just a delight. And sometimes when I'm playing games that are more like, um, you know, just sitting down maybe in the real world and going through your superhero father's will, like that game doesn't inherently have a lot of camera angles to me. Also, it's a LARP, so it doesn't have any camera angles really at all. But anyway, um, but for example, something that is much more down to earth and um, feels smaller scope in terms of the experience um, doesn't end up having a lot of camera descriptors to me. But in genres where you notice the camera angles, that's something that I, I do just use that a lot because it's genre enforcing to use the camera angles to make that stuff happen, right? Mm -hmm. You got to have the cherry blossoms that blow by on the breeze and you follow oh, them and then, you know. <laughs> 100%. And I will sometimes go back after we've kind of resolved a set of actions, especially like in a combat. Sure, yeah. And we'll re-narrate it. Yeah, in the like, cool way with the camera yeah, angles. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially, and again, if we're playing something like Action Movie World, then, you know, um, 100% yes. we have to do, you game. know, walking away from explosions <laughs> and oh all of gosh, that stuff. Oh my gosh, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that's the technique, right? The it, We're two parts to this, right? Just the use of camera as a narration technique and also the use of using the camera to show the players, things the characters don't know. So th those are the two parts. Yes. We've, I think, did a good job of kind of discussing where we see it in media, like everywhere. But you, you nailed it with the Marvel movies. Like those stingers are yeah, top-notch A++++, plus plus plus, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so what does it do, right? What what's, what's the purpose of this technique? I'll share some thoughts and then I'll pass it to you. So this technique is, we touched on it already in one way. It's genre-enforcing. So there are certain genres where this technique works really well and helps create immersion. It is also, we are as, you know, we are as humans in this space, time, and in society, we are predisposed to visual storytelling. We watch movies, we watch TV shows, streaming, if you're old like me and your back hurts a little you watched music videos like all of those things <laughs> and so our brains are really good at seeing stories seeing visuals and processing them when we use this technique with words we are drawing on those things from our brain we're allowing our brain to assemble 
the mental images from the visuals that we've been consuming over and over again. When I give a panning shot that goes like across a city and in through a window, you have an idea from a movie where that's happened before because your brain is assembling these pieces. It understands what this looks like. It understands it from the library of images. It's processed from all these different uh, things that you've watched. So it helps you as a GM immensely get across your imagery. And again, it can help reinforce the genre. It doesn't need to, just it's convenient when it does. And it's like a shorthand. So it's like a really good shorthand to make really evocative descriptions of the table. Build on this for a second. The more evocative your descriptions are, the better immersion, the better focus your players have on you, on the action. And finally, a term we love to use on the Mr. Mark podcast and here as well, the shared narrative space is reinforced because we are all experiencing something that we're having a pretty good idea that we're seeing in our mind, which means we're all in kind of the same narrative space imagining what's happening in the game. So it's interesting, though. I think the other thing that it does is everything that you just said. But to build on that, it allows us to access some of the tropes and stereotypes of how movies use camera angles to create that the shared version, right? So that we're mm -hmm. all seeing something pretty similar in our minds because we've probably watched a lot of the same media, maybe not all the same media, and I'm the person who usually hasn't seen it, right? Like just straight up. But there's usually some media that I've encountered and it's probably the default one that most other people have seen too that makes those visions happen for me in my head um, in a cool way. Um, and I also love it because of the immersion factor. Um, I do think that it's very immersive when you start getting the visuals for it. And to me, being able to do those immersions and have those moments of um, being really interested in that game story narrative, the shared narrative, right? Um, also builds table excitement um, because we don't start the dry way or we're not doing sort of the, yes, you are going here and then, you know, you drive up over here. If we follow the car and, you know, we... Um, we zoom out away from the driver's seat and then we, um, you know, zoom up over the city and then zoom back in on the car over here, whatever it is. Or if you're playing a Star Wars game and you do a wipe, when you say wipe, we know what you mean, but that's back to genre enforcing. But those things do actually build both immersion and excitement for me. Uh, I'm also a fan of the hard cut. Yeah, hard cut is good. Hard cut. I do hard cuts all the time, all the especially time. when I want to just switch from one scene to another and I really don't want to lead my way in. We've talked about that before, but yeah. I will hard cut. Hard cut is also a video, a visual technique. We see it all the time in other media. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think we did a nice job covering what does it do. Let's talk about why people think this causes problems. Right. The reason the reason that the question even gets asked and it's not the camera part. Yes, that's what I was okay? going to say. It's the second part of this. Yes. And so this is and, and I think this is, you know, this is a perfectly valid uh, question to ask. So by all means, sharing our thoughts on showing players things the characters don't know. I'm going to tell you what is implied here. Mm -hmm. I think you already know. I'm going to ask you. I'm not even going to tell you. OK, tell me. What is implied in this statement? Yeah, what you're implying is actually that you can't trust your players to manage um, 
the story from a nice continuous perspective, what the character knows and what the player knows um, in terms of the actions that they then choose to take. I'm going to unpack this with a little nuance. Yes. One, we're not talking about we're not talking about Pod Rubens characters. We're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. Characters yeah. in the most general, yeah, like sorry. players in the most general terms, yes, right? Please not, don't. That's not aimed at anyone in correct, particular. Not pointing guns at anybody's <laughs> no, no. at anybody's players. Okay. Your players sound great. It sounds like this worked out really well for you. <laughs> yes. So there are two things to it. One, uh, trust is one of them. Yep. So. From a trust perspective, let me unpack this and then I'll tell you the second, what I think is the second other possibility. So from a trust perspective, this is the, uh, we're going to use this out of uh, character knowledge to quote, win the game. Yes. Yes, exactly. So that is definitely. We want to bork your story because you gave us information. Correct. So, so this is bad faith gaming. Yes. Right. So the problem there is bad faith gaming, which is uh, one, the players in the GM don't have enough trust for the players to know this knowledge and for them not to make their characters react based on this knowledge. Yes. Okay. That's a possible concern. And if you have that level of trust issue in your game, you have other issues in your game as well. You don't you probably aren't seeing it or maybe you are. Let me tell you the less um, aggressive version of that. Sure. Contamination. Mm, Sure. Okay. So contamination isn't we are openly going to take this information and ruin your game. It's the idea that somebody may not be capable of partitioning their knowledge, uh, player knowledge from their character knowledge, right? That it'll have some level of influence. I don't think this one is as much of a trust problem, maybe a little bit of a trust issue, but it is more of a, do the players have the self-control to separate those two things? And the reason often this comes up is because the thing that you see is often going to be opposed to your characters. Yes. And if you knew this thing, right, then you could prepare your character for it. So at the no trust level, mm-hmm. it is, I see that the, I see that the, you know, wizard is putting on their, you know, robes of magic resistance. So we will not cast our highest level spells when we walk in the room, because we know they're not going to do anything. Ha ha. We're going to, you know, come at them with a full on melee assault. Yeah. And there's a part of this, which is if your player's don't trust you to let them fail without serious in-game consequences like death and stuff, it's going to be harder for them to not use any information that you give them, even when it's out of character, right? Let me show you that same scene with contamination. Yes. Okay. I as player know that the wizard has put on their secret anti-magic bracers. Sure. We go into the scene. Yep. I'm going to cast a spell because I'm a wizard. That's what I do. I'm just going to cast magic missile. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I cast it. I cast a spell. Yeah. Right. Like my character cast a spell. And now that I see that it didn't take effect, I will hold off from casting other stuff. I did not cast like Your empowered seventh, seventh fireball, fireball. Yeah. <laughs> melt, you know, melt opponent or whatever. Yeah. I've saved it for later in the scene. That's contamination, right? That is, can you absolutely knowing in a, so back up, 
in a game where resource management is a big deal, D&D. Yes. Can a player have the discipline to expend an expensive resource fully knowing it won't work? That's discipline. That is discipline. And and what's interesting about the scenario that we've just outlined is that when you and I talked about the places that we will tend to use these scenes, it is never in the situation where you are directly giving players information about how they would waste their resources if they took the action that we would expect them to take. I if mean, that makes sense, right? Like using- I, I try not to. <laughs> I try not to too. And I, well, I just, so I want to point this out, right? Is like, if you did the scene right before the big battle and you showed the wizard specifically putting on his secret um, magic resistance, you know, cuffs or whatever it is um that's that is difficult from a player perspective to take out of the equation of the actions that i take um in terms of influencing them exactly like you just demonstrated um yeah. but you know if they have the big battle and we're now at the end of the session and i wrap up by zooming the camera up until it pulls out of the crystal bowl in which someone else is watching the scene and we don't know who the hooded figure is, that's cool stuff for the players to know and doesn't have any super direct action that they can take, right? Mm -hmm. Anything that they allow that to influence doesn't bother me, right? Sure. And I'm just explaining where the perceived... Oh, no, I know, I know. But yeah. I'm, I'm saying the interesting thing that has come out of that for me is the end result is where, and this is not something we actually necessarily wrote down, but like where and when you can use it without causing the issues that people are usually concerned about when we talk about showing off-camera stuff. Or yeah, not off-camera, but like out-of-character yep. stuff. I, I drifted. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. So this is the this is the perceived problem, right? This is in its worst case, it is completely using that information, uh, you know, against the GM and against you know whatever was seen. And at the the lesser version of it is the contamination version, which is you're going along with it, but you're you know holding some stuff back. Yeah. Right. You're you're making it look good, kind of thing. So, and that's not to say that you know again. Um, it's a perception and it sometimes comes from an antiquated idea of the adversarial GM. Yes. Right. Rather than a cooperative GM, the idea that the GM is out to punish the players. Therefore, if the GM provides any extra information, why wouldn't you use it for your own safety? Yeah, because uh, of course you would in that sort of relationship and in that absolutely. sort of game. Yeah. Right. The The idea that, and I think maybe this is, you know, I want to skip a question really quick. Uh, I want to skip yeah. number five and jump to number six because I think we're kind of heading yeah. in that direction. Sorry, I dragged us along that, that yeah, route. No, you're fine. Yeah. We'll just, we'll, <laughs> me, we may get to five or to okay. throw it in as the end of the thing. Anyway, sure. um, so let's talk about applying it to games. So you brought up one good point, which is don't put the players in a situation that sweats their trust level or contaminate or you know the the fact that they're going to contaminate themselves right like yeah like just show them things that are woo and cool but don't directly affect the don't directly affect the characters in a dangerous way and therefore you don't you don't run into this problem yes 
Yeah, there's like, there's no immediate direct action that they would take even with the knowledge, right? Correct. There are other ways, like if you want to drop them some hints that the wizard's wearing anti-magic bracers, there are other in-game hints. You don't have to show an outside scene for that. There are ways that you could work it into the narration leading up to the fight that would uh, help the players discover that. Yeah. You can't. So what you can do is then just first tip is pick things that are uh, cool for moving the story along, but don't threaten the players directly. Yeah. 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 That, I, I that, yeah that's the, that's the, sum, yeah. the summary. Yeah, it's perfect. Now I will say that there is a place, there is a game, uh, Dungeon World, mm-hmm. which, and several other PBTA games have this move as well, which is to show something bad happening off screen. Yes. Like the actions of the players have accidentally let loose a monster or woke something terrible up in the dungeon or whatever. 100%. I love it. Yeah. I will just lean into that. Yes. Now, I do that because Dungeon World is a game where harming the players is at sometimes the least interesting thing you can do in the game. And it is a game where there's far more cooperation. And again, it's a game that has built into one of the tenants to be a fan of the players, like all of all of those things. It is a game that works better on collaboration, not competition between GM. And I will go as far to say is that all role playing games actually work better. I mean, that's that's how I like to play them. But it's the only way I play mine. Yes. <laughs> I don't play adversarial type of, I don't play adversarial types of games. I don't no. play to win or beat my players ever. No. no. Um, I do play to watch my players squirm and sweat at times. I do like that. Um, but I am not out to, <laughs> I am not out to punish my players. Yes. So to back up and kind of expand how to apply this to your game, the general camera technique is really easy to apply to your game. Just work your narration using some terminology from camera techniques. You can look this stuff up on you can look this stuff up on the internet if you want some specific techniques or words or terms, but you can also just start describing it in the words that you know based on the media that you've seen. You have more of this stocked up in you than you think. And if you start doing it, um, there are other people at the table who may join in when their their descriptions as players also make sense to use some kind of camera angle, right? And then right. it's really fun, especially when it is genre enforcing, right? Or especially when it is enforcing whatever atmosphere you're doing at the table. Um, people will tend to hop in if you open that door to be like, we can have camera angles. So, you know, we can, we, you can start the shot behind your character and then zoom up alongside them and then zoom in front of them right as they dive with the sword, you know, whatever it is. Um, people will jump into that with you frequently if you demonstrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the general camera technique is relatively easy to apply it into games you're running. And then, like we said, when you're doing the the off screen scenes, pick your pick them so that you don't sweat your players on them. Like pick them in a way that the players can um, act on them in the best way possible. Now, if you have really good players and you're playing a game where this kind of making bad decisions works out. Like, I will say this. I don't recommend making a lot of bad decisions in d d It's, it, D&D will not catch you. Correct. If you, if you intentionally make 
a lot of bad decisions, especially in a row. Yes. Th- there isn't really a lot of safety net there. No. Yeah. <laughs> There's a few points of inspiration. There's some hit points and a couple death saves, but D&D is not looking out for you to make bad decisions. A lot of PBTA games yes. will let you lean into bad decisions. Oh, so yes. in PBTA games, I am more likely to employ this technique because I know that for a lot of people who play P- PBTA, PBTA games, and I'm going to give a shout out to uh, the Weregator. Mm-hmm making bad decisions is sometimes their favorite thing to do in the game and just let the dice roll to see what happens. And the cool part is as the GM, you modulate this because on a failed roll, you pick the move for what's going to happen. So when somebody makes a bad decision, you can pick one that fits what you would like to happen and not just, oh, it failed straight up roll damage. Yeah, like you're just screwed. And I think the other interesting thing, because to me, PBTA games, the thing, one of, one of the things that they excel at so much is really genre emulating story types. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you are making bad decisions as a character um, or when your player you as a player are basically intentionally making decisions. I don't even want to say bad. I want to say suboptimal decisions, right? Yes, it's, when it's you are making suboptimal you. decisions um, as a player for your character, you are doing them because that is the thing that either makes sense for your character or that is the thing that makes the story the coolest. Because there is a part of this where even though the character is what I control, that character is my contribution to an overall collaborative story that we are building together. And sometimes the coolest thing that I can possibly do for this story is make a suboptimal decision for my character. And Mm -hmm. those are the situations when I personally get very excited to make suboptimal decisions um, because I love seeing the story react to those because, you know, the, the, the protagonists in the media that we consume, they don't always make the best decision. They don't. Correct. And they don't always make, or sometimes they make the best decision based on the information they have, which turns out to be a suboptimal decision. But as a player, I can make that suboptimal decision, even though I have more information, um, because I love what the story is going to do with that decision. And I'm still actually getting rewarded as a player for making a suboptimal decision by how cool the story or the situation or the conversation or whatever it is that I'm in the middle of, how cool that thing gets by the action that I took of taking the suboptimal choice. Um, So as a player, I am rewarded. And then as a player, I am also cushioned against consequences that would be crappy, right? Like I'm probably not going to die and be taken out of the game because that's really sort of the, the worst consequence of making a suboptimal decision is you don't get to play anymore, right? Everybody else gets to keep playing and you don't get to, which is what happens when you die in D&D or when you're, you know, frozen because someone cast a spell on you or whatever it is. And then you just sit there and watch the rest of the table get to continue having the story and you don't get to contribute for whatever amount of time. Like that, that is actually player punishment for making a suboptimal decision. You don't get to play. Like, sorry. You made a suboptimal decision, you don't get to play. So I really like games where making a suboptimal decision is is unlikely to remove me from play. It'll just make cool things happen. So back to cameras. 
even if I know that stuff that the protagonist wouldn't know, I can make the optimal decision based on the information that they actually have, even though I, the player, know it is a suboptimal decision because I don't have to carry fear about, ugh, it's really going to suck if, like, everything goes wrong and I have to sit here for an hour before I get to actually play the game again. Yeah, I agree to all of those points. And I would like to transition us into the player part. Yes. So as a player, let's go back to camera in general. Sure. As we said at the beginning of the show, as a player, you absolutely can narrate your stuff in the form of cameras. Yes. You can talk about how you come walking into the royal court with, you know, cameras going and, you know, the appropriate amount of, you know, air, you know, in your hair and like all of that stuff. Like, mm-hmm. feel free. Use the same techniques Start at the, the GM does. And pan up till we get to the bounce in the hair and you got to have the bounce, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. So absolutely, as a, as a player, you can totally uh, do the same thing that the GM's doing. Do it for your combat moves. Do it for just general narration of your character, whatever. Don't overdo it. Don't do every turn yeah, yeah, in yeah. a full camera sequence. You know how media works. You know when to pick your moves. You know when to like lay on your description a little thicker. Do it. Do it then. In terms of the seeing things that your characters don't know. This is a discipline thing. You need to have the discipline not to contaminate your decision-making process. And I will, I know I do this as a player, I will think about, I mean, think very hard, right? I partition this information. What would my player do? What would my character do based on the things they've actually seen or heard. Yes. And so, you know, there are times in games, especially where we've had a lot of meta discussion, where I'm like, oh, no, my player has no idea that this is the lizard man in disguise. He absolutely opens the door to let this guy in. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. He has no reason, like... Is he doing anything like when he opens the door and lets him in? Nope. He thinks it's perfectly fine. He turns his back right on him. Yep. Like now that said, I don't want to do that in a game where it's just a, it's attrition, resource management. I'm going to get crushed. I don't want to do that in D&D. Right, because you'll end up sitting there for an hour while everybody else gets to play. Or I'll be making my death saves, right? Because, (laughs) you know, I have like no armor class when I got hit. Yeah. But if I'm in a PBTA game, you can be 100% sure. I'm totally doing it. Yeah. If if you show me something and it's definitely going to like mess up my character. If, I love it. If I will do it. Yep. <laughs> I will let the dice hit the table because I trust the GM to play into the genre. Like, of course, I turn my back. Of course, I'm going to get knocked out. Right. That's maybe, the story. Maybe I won't get knocked out and we'll have a fight in the middle of the room. Or maybe I'll get knocked out and captured. Right. Whatever. Whatever. I'm trusting, like, let's play the game. Yeah. So, so I will, as a player, like, just when you get to those moments where you feel like you might be contaminating your own decisions, mm-hmm. think really hard. Why would your character do this? Why would your character do this with you know, without any knowledge that is currently rattling around your head. Like, why would you fire that magic missile, a weak low-level spell, at your 
you know, at the Arch Wizard, when in every encounter, your character always comes in and hits like one of their big spells right off the bat. Now, if your character always starts with a low level spell to kind of test the waters yeah. before they launch a big one, then fine. Absolutely no contamination. Yeah. Fire your magic missile, check off that you were correct and you're fine. But if but if all of your play up to this point has always <laughs> been, I walk in the door, boom, I drop the fireball to soften up the room and then everybody runs in. Mm-hmm. If you're like, mm, maybe I should use the magic missile. Why? What? Why? Right. <laughs> Challenge your character. Why did you change that? Mm hmm. Right. So that is, um, you know, that's the thing. And if you're so contaminated that you're afraid, like you're compromised, like one, you can just say that to everybody in the room, you know, at the table and get some support. Yes. But two, you can ask the GM to like, can I make a perception check? Yeah. Maybe you see the bracers. Right. Right. Like you make the, you know, the GM's like, sure, make a perception check. Oh, yeah. You actually see magical bracers and you know that they're his anti-magic bracers and you're like oh i'm not throwing my fireball right that's okay you've you're narrating your way into a reason why you would take that action yeah um the thing that i would also say and this gets back to communication always i have never done this at a table but i think that you could if you were sitting at a table and um so the the place that i can imagine me doing this is like a convention game where i don't really know the people so i don't necessarily know maybe the table culture that you know i'm sitting down with i think it's actually fair if you're not sure to even ask and just say, hey, if I make a, a suboptimal decision intentionally in this game, is that a problem, right? Like, how do you play that GM or table? Like, how do you deal with that? Is that going to be an issue? You know, do you have safety stuff in place or do you, you know, laugh at me evilly and try to murder my character? Like, I think, oh, yeah. you can, I, I think you can straight up ask is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. And player to player, you can ask players. If you oh, see yeah. somebody starting to act on out of game knowledge, you could be like, whoa. Is that cool? Do you know that? Yeah. Or how do you know that? Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can, you can also help your fellow players. Yeah. So. Cool. Cool. Oh, by the way, yeah. um, I think we snuck in question five for we people who did. are like, for people who are dying, like what was question five? Yeah. Are there games that have off camera off-camera rules built in the uh most likely one is from the um show them you know off-scene badness or whatever there's a couple different words for it but pb some ppta games have this dungeon world absolutely has it and i just had an encounter of it that i think is part of the game and that it wasn't something that chris put in the game but we are playing public access and when we finished our story, our session the other night, there was a creepy ending about a, that included a character we had met in town. And there was it was like this really creepy uh, Twin Peaks-esque kind of thing that closed the TV show kind of for the night. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the game. If it wasn't and Chris just made it up, it's brilliant. But if it was part of the game, like part of like something that Chris was supposed to narrate in at the end of the game, then chef's kiss to Jason Cordova for um, baking that kind of creepy off-camera thing into this game. That game is just great anyway. But I mean, Brindlewood Bay, I haven't played public access, but public access is the public access is the darker. Yeah. 
um, Brindlewood Bay. Like if yeah. Brindlewood Bay is just, you know, sweet grandmas solving terrible crimes. I mean, the- it was sweet grandmas solving terrible crimes. There were also a lot of murders and, yes. you know, like the dead fish whispering um, demonic oh, sayings yeah. into our ears. You know, I mean, it just, you know. Well, public access is the um, public access is what it's emulating is creepypasta. Yeah. yeah so yeah. if you like those Internet creepypastas and things like that, this this is your shit. Like <laughs> it's it's a thing. Anyway, we have done it. We have gotten through the topic. We have hit all of our questions. I think we had a pretty lively discussion. I think so, too. About it. it and great. I love this. I love this question. Pod Rubin, use the camera, do off-camera stuff. I think it's fantastic. Um, yeah. I think and, it's fantastic. And to be clear, the stinger, the the actual action um, that you took is something that I would consider a stinger, which is that moment. Um, so Pod Rubin had some imposters among their party, um, and one of them had been discovered, and one of them hadn't. And they did a stinger thing at the end where they showed the real actual character, like still working to try to catch up with the party. Um, And to me, I was like, that's brilliant because it fulfills a lot of the like, there wasn't super immediate action that they felt that they had to take in a direct threat kind of way. Like they could be contaminated, but it's, it's one that's reasonably easy to contain and it gives you a lot of energy for the next session. It's a great stinger. I think it's fantastic. That's the kind of nonsense that I would do. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good. Okay. We have done it. We have reached the end. Uh, a fantastic, a fantastic episode. And uh, love it. Love it. Love it. And let's move on. So the way we do that is that Senda tells us about another show on the Misdirected Mark Network. What do you got? Sure. Um, on Bonus Experience, Monica and her friends explore gameplay and design through the lens of diversity while also sharing some of the dumbest humor that gaming has to offer. Monica is pretty great, just so that we're all clear. Mm-hmm. It's good. Indeed, indeed. Say, Senda, how do people find us on the internet? Gosh, it keeps getting hard, right? Um, but you can still find us on Twitter at Pandas Talk Games. Uh, you can find us on Mice uh, Mice Camp <laughs> Mastodon. I, thought you were gonna, I honestly thought you were going to say MySpace. I was like, what? Yeah, MySpace. Um, I was mixing Mastodon and Dice dot camp um into mice camp all right let's try um, that again try that again <laughs> so you can find us um on the dice.camp server on mastodon um our usernames there are dna phil and idella mithland it's i-d-e-l-l-a-m-i-t-h-l-y-n-n-d um you can find us with those same usernames on the tiki talkies um you can drop us a message in the forums which is forums.misdirectedmark.com or you can drop us an email panda at misdirectedmark.com and phil once they find us in one of those myriad of places what can they do with that information just like Pod Rubin did, send us along a topic you'd like to hear our thoughts about. We love doing this stuff. I can't even, I can't even express how much we enjoy doing this. I, I genuinely love sharing this kind of advice and giving you guys ideas and thoughts and tips and tricks and all that stuff. Like, I love this. I would not be recording two podcasts every <laughs> week if I didn't actually love doing this. And I do. And I want you to... Uh, I want you to like soak in this stuff. I want you to ask us about things that you, you know, struggle with or you want to get better at or just you've never tried it before and you want some tips on how to do it because I want you to have a better time 
uh, running your games and playing in your games because that's how you're going to stay in gaming. You know the formula, I say it every time, right? The Mm -hmm. more games that you run, the better time you have, the more you will continue to run games, the more people will get to play, the more different types of games you will get to experience. You will stay in the hobby longer. I say it every time and I mean it because it's true and I'm living proof of it. So that's what we want you to do. If you like what we do here elsewhere on the Mr. Mark podcast, consider supporting our Patreon campaign. Patrons of the show get access to our awesome Slack room for life, which includes many, many, many topics of which you can partake in. It includes our Friday luncheons, which you can come hang out with us. We have a topic. I don't always, we don't always stick to topic. We kind of just like chat and hang out and stuff like that but it is um full of listeners and hosts of other of some of the shows on the network um and it's a delightful time it is a um pandemic tradition that we have just kept going um regardless of the fact that not all of us are at home anymore so uh join us there if you are a four dollar patron or higher you get access to the children of the shroud materials uh including the 15 or 20 minute uh recording i do every few weeks talking about the upcoming story called behind the screen i'm just as gonna well. say it started as 10 minutes so it's creeping up just like it does keep on it's true <laughs> i was I I don't know. I just I get on there and record. And when I hit stop, I hit stop. So 10 10 to 20 minutes. (laughs) Sure. Anyway, (laughs) you get all that stuff at the higher levels. You get access to playtest documents as Chris is working on the lamplighter system. I will likely be working on some stuff as well that will go in there at some point. So you'll get a chance to sample that as well. Anyway, if you all are already backing our Patreon campaign, thank you very much. Uh, your contributions are what helps the uh, podcast continue to run from our website to our mics to the cords that go into our mics. All of that stuff uh, helps us immensely. And if you're unable to, there is a thing you can do that uses a little bit of your precious time, which we value and respect, but it is actually pretty helpful. Senda, what is that thing? Well, you can leave us a rating or review on the podcatcher of your choice um, or Apple Podcasts, which I said in the reverse order this time and confused myself. And those really do actually help new people find the show. And we love reading the reviews. So if you leave one somewhere and you don't think I saw it, let me know because I will go find that thing and go read it. I I love them. Um, What do you get a podcaster for a holiday? you get them a review. Uh, You can also just tell your friends if there's somebody else um, looking for podcasts, you know, um, for whatever it is, non-AP system agnostic game shows. uh, That's us. So we really appreciate every time uh, you share us out there. It's uh, pretty fantastic. And we've definitely um, gotten to meet some very cool people because of it. So thank you all very much to everybody who's done both of those things. Indeed, indeed. Thank you very much. We appreciate it immensely. Hey, Senda. Mm-hmm. As the camera pans <laughs> away from me over to you, we see you at your desk. The lights are off, a single light shining down on the desk, and you are feverishly working away on something. What is the thing that you are working on that indicates the nefarious plan that you are going to unveil uh yeah i think actually the camera keeps coming down and goes slightly over my shoulder and you just get a glimpse of like a sketch of a logo design um and then the lights go out and we we cut Ooh, away well the played <laughs> well played i actually know the reference to that. <laughs> 
This show is a joint production of She's a Super Geek and Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. I am clicked in. I am also clicked in. Oof. And I just want to make sure when I move far away, that's the mic that's here. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. I forgot to check before we hit Your record. Your voice got tiny when you moved Apparently, away. you can't change the audio setup once you're already recording in Audacity, no, which makes I sense. No, I suspect no. But I was suddenly like, oh, we should check this. <laughs> Bloop. Oh, I have cleaned oh. my house. It's good. Like two hours and 15 minutes of intense cleaning. Now my house is done for the week. Yeah, you have clean house. House reset. I do. Yep. It looks nice. It's good. I have a thing, but I will talk about it in the Bamboo Lounge because... <sighs> That's fine. Okay, Coolio. Kay. All right, let's count in for... Um, let's count in for Ryan. Oh, by the way, hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Yeah. Cool. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Hello. That was your silence, Ryan, just in case you missed it. I think Ryan knows the routine now. I think we count in and then we go silent. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Yeah. Try to put all that stuff in one place for him. Yep. 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 All right. Let me take a big deep breath. Get all the breath sounds as much as I can out of the mic. (sighs) I was running around for a bunch. I think my heart rate is back down to normal. Let's take a peek. Uh, Like just a scotch elevated. Oh, that was four minutes ago. I just saw you four minutes ago, so it was higher. It's, it's actually, it's down just a little now that we're recording. <sighs> Trying to make me match my dress. Is that what's happening? Indeed. Okay. Are you, are you ready? Yes. Bloop. That was intense. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Finger guns point at you. How about sorry, you? that was a lot. I wasn't sure if there sorry, was more. No, no, and then there good. was a siren and all sorts of, sorry, Ryan. Did you hear the siren? I heard the siren. Yeah. Oh, man, that's like, that was like down it the was, road. I can't believe you yeah. heard that. Okay. I know. I was sort of surprised that it picked up. Okay. Sorry, um, Ryan. <laughs> bloop. Show me what you got. Show, Show me what, what you got. got. Show me what you got. Show me what you got. 